The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm Automotive News Publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. There's a little-known story emerging in a Pennsylvania suburb crafted by a man with a talent for art, culture, and car design and focused around a protagonist that most have never known but certainly will appreciate. It's the story of a race car driver, a talented one, and one who, given the opportunity, likely would have rewritten the record books. It's the story of Charlie Wiggins, an African-American driver who wasn't allowed to compete in the Indy 500 in the 20s and 30s. He could have been in contention every year. And if you don't know Charlie Wiggins, Ed Welburn's going to change that. In automotive circles, Welburn is his own trailblazer, although he was able to gain his own shot and leave his mark globally. As once the highest-ranking African-American at any global car company and the first African-American head of global design at GM, Welburn designed his own destiny. And what a legacy. The Corvette, the Cadillac Escalade, the Chevy Camaro, they all have his fingerprints on them, as do hundreds of other GM vehicles over the last 20 years. The new design, in some ways, is a far more international design. It's, a, in many ways, a very exotic design, true to Corvette roots, but it's like it is, is grown up in, in many ways, in a very positive way. Welburn served in his role from 2003 to 2016. It was the same position once held by Harley Earl and Bill Mitchell. Welburn was impactful in many other ways, instrumental in transforming an organization once deemed immovable. During his time, he united disparate design teams from around the world into one functioning unit, bringing together the best talents and uniting them under one umbrella, the one he was holding. Today, out of his home in Pennsylvania, Welburn has moved on to his other passion, telling the story of Charlie Wiggins, this time as a film producer. And what a story it is. Next spring, the life of the man nicknamed Speed King will be adapted from an Emmy-winning documentary and best-selling book into a feature film titled Erased. IndyCar and Firestone have signed on as partners on the movie. In a way, Ed Welburn is designing another art project, this one about inspiration and a man who didn't get his racing chance. Inspiring, thoughtful, colorful, and bold, this is the story of Ed Welburn and Charlie Wiggins. I'm Ed Welburn, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Ed, what a pleasure to welcome you to the show. I appreciate you joining me. We've traveled the world for years together, and I'm honored to have you as a guest. Well, it's great to be here. I just, you know, you're right. We have crossed paths in some very interesting places. So congratulations on the project. Let's start with Erased, which is, of course, the story of Charles Charlie Wiggins, one of the most celebrated African-American race car drivers of his era, and is now being developed into a feature film. You're a filmmaker now. I mean, you've designed a lot of things. And in fact, um, our listeners wouldn't know that you were sketching a shoe while you were waiting to start this broadcast. Um, but now you're, you're, you're drawing uh, your, your way into new areas. Tell me about what it's like to be a filmmaker. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I got to tell you, it, the story itself is such an important story to be told, uh, one that has been erased from history, and we're bringing it back. And I think in some ways, it's one of the most meaningful projects of my life. I, I'm, I'm just so really into it. How did you get started on the journey of Charlie Wiggins? Well, it, it was fascinating, and I'll try to keep the story short, how I learned about it, because I thought I knew everything about the history of auto racing, but I knew nothing about this story. I happened to be at Indianapolis for the 500 a few years ago. And after the race, I stopped back to the hotel for a quick change before the after parties, flipped on the TV, and PBS was running a documentary on this subject about Charlie Wiggins and African-American race car drivers. I was stunned. I knew nothing about the story sat there and watched it all and ordered the DVD and the book. And over time, I decided, you know, someone needs to make a movie. I talked to a couple of producers. They thought that I was the one who needed to do it. And off we're running. I 
I bought the movie rights to the book and the, and the documentary, hired a team of producers and writers, and we were off to the races. What exactly inspired you? I mean, you, you have talked about the fact that you were excited and at the same time deeply saddened that such an amazing piece of African-American history, of American history or car history, could be completely unknown to you. It was, and it was unknown to everyone. I mean, uh, one of my neighbors is Mario Andretti and, and he knew nothing of the story. And, you know, the fact that in the 1920s, auto racing was fairly new and the drivers were like national heroes. You know, the guys that ran in Indianapolis and African-Americans wanted to be heroes as well. They wanted to be a part of it, but were not allowed to participate in auto racing, in major auto racing. So uh, they formed their own league, which ran for 10 years with great fan base. It was pretty exciting. And so that is what inspired me. And I, it's a story that I think everyone needs to know. And, and there are things within the story, whether you're into auto racing or not, that you will find interesting and meaningful and I think people of all ages will enjoy it. Tell me about Charlie Wiggins. What did you learn about him? What have you learned about him? What I learned was that he was, he was a self-taught engineer. Uh, he engineered and built all of his own race cars. They were specials. You know, they, all the cars that were done by small shops were specials. The others were, you know, like Miller made race cars that were sold in, in quantities. But he engineered his cars, built them, and he was the driver. Uh, and the only person he would trust to drive the car other than himself was his wife, Roberta, who was actually a very skilled driver. And, uh, but, you know, he was a very mild-mannered person, very focused on what he was doing in developing race cars. He was also a mechanic in a shop in Indianapolis as well. And uh, it's just a very meaningful story. And he was highly successful. Um, in, in fact, even um, doing some uh, engineering work for some other very successful Indy 500 teams that did win on the track, correct? Yeah, he, uh, um, in the championship that he ran in, it was the, the Golden Glory sweepstakes. It ran for a 10 year period. He won the championship four times and was runner up on a couple other occasions. Um, blacks were forbidden, it was unwritten, but they're forbidden from being drivers or mechanics and in, at Indianapolis. But a good friend of his had a car entered at Indy and one at Charlie's assistance. And Charlie helped him, but he had to go in as in a janitor's uniform and at night would do work on the car. The car was driven by Wild Bill Cummins, and he won the 500 that year. So it's wow, incredible. I mean, there are so many layers to the story that are so fascinating. When you have looked into the history of, of racing during that era, of, of course, as you, as you mentioned, um, there was a, a complete dialogue that has gone untold. What was life like for African-American racers at that time? It was, you know, what was interesting is that um, they had quite a friendship with, uh, with the white drivers who were racing at, at other tracks. Uh, they knew each other quite well. Um, that, that was very cool. And the Chevrolet brothers were actually used, this racing league that African-Americans were in, they used it as a proving grounds for a lot of their parts that later would run at the big tracks like Indy. Um, a lot of it was based in Indianapolis, uh, this racing league. And the state of Indiana, one out of three adult males was uh, white males, was a member of the Klan so in that period of time. So it was a very prejudiced period of time. Uh, incredible challenges uh, that they lived through but uh their community you know was full it was the jazz age 
you know, and so their community was a very live place. Um, auto racing was big with everyone. And, and, you know, that's kind of the root of it all. This is a completely different path for you. And we're going to talk about your history at General Motors and your own design career. And you're no stranger to really being a part of important pieces of society. But what's it like to be part of a movie now? And, and what's the role of producer for you? Yeah, my role is as a producer. I mean, I was the founder uh, of Wellburn Media Productions, which is at the root of it all. And, and uh, Madison Lee has really become my partner. And we, we hired a team of writers and producers. And uh, even with the challenges of COVID, we've been able to, with many people, find very creative ways of working. And, and Zoom has really become you know, our friend. And we, you know, we meet as the core team meets on a weekly basis. And then we have many other meetings that take place as well. We're at a stage in development where the script is done. And I'm very excited about that. And we're now talking to the film companies, potential directors and lead actors. And so that's where we are in development. We have some exciting partners on the project. IndyCar and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway are partners. Firestone's a partner. Firestone was very involved in racing back then as they are today. And, you know, they considered auto racing to be a big proving grounds for them and, and PR move for them as well. Uh, they're great partners and there are other partners that will come on board uh, in the very near future. In fact, Roger Penske, who's been on this program before, and his entire Indianapolis team have supported this effort, which I know will just propel it forward. Yes, uh, it's they're great partners and have really opened the door to their archives and, and their museum, which, you know, which has been very helpful as we develop uh, the story. You were just the sixth design chief in GM's 108-year history and the first African-American auto designer and the highest-ranking African-American in any auto company in the world. It, this has got to have some symbolism to you in many ways, Ed Welburn. I, you know, there are things about this story, this movie that we're developing, that, set, that, that really ring true or seem very familiar to me. And my development as a designer, uh, my passion for autom automobile design from a very early childhood, which led to my career and my whole focus that I had on becoming a car designer. Uh, so, yeah, the parallels are definitely there. Let's talk about that. You grew up in Philadelphia at eight years old. You visited the Philadelphia Auto Show. You looked at the Cadillac Cyclone in 1958, which was a concept car that was on display. And what did you think? I, I just remember, I remember it like it was like last week. And, you know, my father was on my right side, my mother on my left. And, and it's, I was looking at it and the railing was almost like, you know, eye level. So I was looking at peering over the railing at this car and it was just like a dream car. It was like this spaceship to another planet for me compared to everything else in 1958. And I, at that moment, I said to my parents, when I grow up, I want to design cars for that company. And, um, and it, you know, within a, I had started writing letters to that company, General Motors, and you know, about careers and design. You wrote a letter when you were 11 years old. What did the letter say? Yeah, it was interesting. And think about, think about back then, you know, kid sits down, writes the letter, my mother's standing over my shoulder just to make sure, you know, what I'm doing is proper. And you put it in the mail and you send it off. It's not like you hit send. Right. You send <laughs> a letter, you know in blue ink on paper, you know. And uh, I was interested in careers in design, automobile design, and I wanted to know what it was I needed to do. Was this more engineering or was it more art? Was it science? Was it math? What was it? And uh, I wanted to know about schools, you know, um, of higher education. Although I was 11 years old, I was already 
you know, planning, you know, that path. And they sent me great information. There was a gentleman in uh, HR at Design by the name of Milo McNaughton who uh, sent a letter to me. And then over time, I kind of felt like he and I were pen pals because like every year I would send a letter to him with more questions. And uh, uh, later in high school, you know, like more definition on the type of schools I should think of going to design schools. And they sent me a great list. Your father, Edward Sr., he owned his own auto mechanic shop and he encouraged you to work on car designs. And your mother, Evelyn, she made sure you never strayed academically. You, you, you actually said as a kid, you were a slow reader, but you loved car magazines. Is that right, Ed? Well, yes, I was a slow reader and my mother tried everything, special classes on Saturdays, all kinds of, you know, special tutors. And, and it really wasn't affecting my reading at all. And then she decided, you know, well, this kid's crazy about cars. How about if we get him car magazines? And, you know, by age 11, I had subscriptions to a number of car magazines and, and would read them from cover to cover. And that helped me more than anything to improve my reading, uh, reading car magazines. Your parents were also cognizant enough, aware enough to, to know that there were no Blacks designing cars, as you once said. Sure and that it would be a challenge to get into the field. But you had a mission, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing a, a bit of a rallying point that you knew exactly what you wanted to do when you studied design and sculpture and painting when you went to Howard University. But then you started interning as well in 1971 at GM. What did your parents think about that? Well, you know, my parents were far more cautious about it than what they led on. You know, they didn't want to do anything to stifle my enthusiasm for automobile design. You know, they, their impression was there wasn't anyone of color doing that. Uh, by the way, when I applied to that list of schools that General Motors gave me uh, senior year, I'll never forget the very first rejection letter that I got. You know, everyone thinks of me, Ed Welburn, head of design for General Motors globally. When I was in high school, I got rejected from one design school after another, after another, after another. I mean, I felt like this dream was disappearing. And uh, I'll never forget the Philadelphia College of Art. With them, you had to show your portfolio of work in person. And it was a Saturday morning and all the students who were applying had their work on display. And that is when I saw that my work that I thought was so great did not measure up to the others. I had gone to a great high school in a suburb of Philadelphia in Berwyn, and great school, one of the highest ranked high schools, not only in the state, but in the nation, but their art program was weak. And is when I saw the other students work from other schools that I saw that, you know, my portfolio didn't measure up. And so this whole dream was starting to fade. And then I was accepted by Howard University. And at Howard, although they did not have a major in transportation design, everyone knew what my mission was. And they did everything they could to help me with that mission. You know, Between product design, sculpture, and painting, I was able to really craft a program with their leadership, with their help, you know, to that really helped me reach my goal. And it was always GM that you wanted. Yeah, I never, I never even thought about working someplace else. And it was always GM. If I would not have been accepted by GM, I probably would have gone into fashion design. And, uh, but I think the professors at Howard were as excited, maybe more excited than me when. I was accepted into that internship program because it was not only was I going to GM, but I was representing Howard University and they were pretty fired up about that. So you're an intern and then the, the next year after your internship, you're the first African-American hired to design GM vehicles. Incredible. What did that yes. mean to you? 
it's it had, it had to be monumental. I think, I think I, uh, initially I was just so excited to walk it walk through the doors of General Motors design. You know, I had been on this mission since childhood. You know, it was I was eight years old when I said that's where I wanted to work, and so I wasn't thinking about being the first. Uh, but it wasn't long after I started that I realized that I was in many ways representing more than just myself. Um, that what I did, how I performed, how I carried myself, every detail of me in some ways was being watched and, and I was representing more than myself. Imagine you looked around the design studio and there weren't many folks who looked like you at that time. Well, there weren't any. And, uh, you know, there were a couple people in the shops. There was a guy, Jim Propina, who, who he just, he was a person who would just bring clay into the studios. He was a more material handler and, and got to know him fairly well. But, uh, yeah, there was no one in the studios of color. What did you work on first? What were some of your first projects? Um, you know, the, the first year was like a rotation through a, a variety of studios to kind of see where I fit best, advanced design work uh, on some Chevrolets, future Chevrolets, and, and then the Pontiac Studios spent some time in there. When I got to Advanced Buick, um, Advanced Buick was really Bill Mitchell's playpen. It was just you designed stuff for Bill Mitchell. And we're, they were designing Buick Rivieras. And I just really connected with designing Rivieras. And, you know, my father had had a 65 Riviera, loved the car. First ticket I ever got was driving a Riviera. And, but I, I enjoyed working in that studio and they really saw how I clicked there. So I was then assigned to the Buick production studio to work on continue working on Rivieras and the whole product line. And as you progressed through, you, ro I mean, you rose in the ranks, you became chief designer of the Oldsmobile studio, spent some time in Saturn, spent some time in Rüsselsheim, Germany, and then eventually directed GM's advanced design center in Warren, which was then a body on frame architecture. Um, and, and I mean, that whole pathway led you to that role of GM design North America in 2000 three, which was so significant at that time. Does that seem like a blur just running through all of those fields? I mean, you're, you're navigating General Motors at that point. Well, you know, it's my career. I felt like a journeyman designer for many years. I, the first 20 years of my career was, you know, just a designer on the boards working away, you know, really totally enjoying what I was doing. Uh, it wasn't until I started working for Wayne Cherry uh, when he was VP. Wayne gave me, I really feel that like he was the first real mentor that I had. There were others who helped me along the way, but Wayne really, he, he gave me some great assignments that at the time didn't seem like much fun. They were pretty tough. But they really helped me. I mean, working, spending time in the Saturn studios, spending time in Germany at, in the Opel studios for a year, the advanced design work that I did, then the work on trucks. I mean, in my whole like 25 years there, I had not worked on trucks at all. So he put me in charge of all of truck design. He had a great team reporting to me. And we worked on a whole generation full-size trucks a lot of work on Hummer design. And that really rounded me out, prepared me for being VP. And I felt ready for that assignment. For those who don't know, uh, for our, our listeners who, who might not be as attuned to it, how, how much of an impact did Wayne Cherry have on General Motors design? You know, I think Wayne was, was a very innovative designer. He, I think his greatest contribution was his focus on brands and having a strong identity for each brand. Uh, in the early days of the company, Sloan really pushed for brand identity and along with Harley Earl and, and Bill Mitchell as well. But I, it became 
far more blurry over time. And Wayne really pushed hard to give a very clear identity to each brand. And I, I think that's his greatest contribution. When they came to you and they said, okay, you're, you're going to be the one in charge now, I would imagine that was a fairly heady moment for you to realize how far you'd come. It was. I, I must admit that I was doing quite a, a bit of that job prior to uh, getting it officially. Uh, Wayne had given me that amount of responsibility. But yeah, it, it was a big moment. Didn't have time to really celebrate. Uh, it was classic celebration on the run. And, uh, you know, was I ready for it? I thought I was ready. I think there's some who weren't quite sure that I was ready for that assignment, though. <laughs> so you take the reins, and then you do something that was revolutionary for GM at the time. You, you created something called GM Global Design, and you merged all of those disparate regions together in order to form... A, some continuity for this automaker. How important was that move? Well, think about it. I mean, there were at the time about 10, maybe 11 design centers around the world, each one working very independent from the other. Um, if the studio in Brazil wanted a very different aesthetic for Chevrolet brand, they gave it a very different look. Even the shape of the bow tie, I think it at the time that I took over, there were like 27 different designs for the Chevrolet bow tie alone. That's <laughs> kind of a symbol of how, you know. How complicated I, can a bow tie be? Yeah, ex exactly. And But they were not interchangeable. The signage for the dealership, everything was like totally different. And um, the regional leaders liked it that way. So convincing them that that this one global organization working together, working in collaboration was a bit of a challenge. It didn't take much to get the designers to sign on board. We had, I think, somewhat of a fraternity anyway, but they were eager to be a part of a global machine. So now you're at the epicenter of designing, being responsible for the design of so many iconic vehicles and new vehicles to come. I mean, we're talking the Corvette the Escalade, the Camaro, groundbreaking concepts, the Buick Avista. And you're also the lead designer of the Chaparral 2X Vision GT car designed for Gran Turismo 6. <laughs> I mean, you're at the center of all of it. Well, yeah, I think when it really became kind of shocking was, you know, we worked with Disney to redesign the Epcot Pavilion for Chevrolet. And Disney had never worked with an outside design house, which we were. And we worked with them, and they were very happy with the results. Um, people who go to that event, to that pavilion, absolutely love it. So then they decided they, they, they wanted us to work with them on Disney Shanghai. And that, that was fun. Um, it had its challenges. And before it opened, they wanted me to to ride the ride that was a part of it. We had worked, it was kind of a Tron inspired thing. And the ride was a roller coaster of like Tron motorcycles. I'm not a roller coaster kind of guy, but, <laughs> I, but I rode it. I was, I was in the very lead motorcycle on this roller coaster. It was really crazy. And, uh, and I'm thinking, wow, this, this is a whole lot bigger and broader than what I ever dreamed my life at General Motors design would be. Well, and let's even talk about the beast, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the beast, I mean, it, for generations, the, the presidential limousine was a Cadillac, and they were, with each one, the armor plating was becoming thicker and thicker, the glass was getting thicker, and eventually the interior was so small, you could barely sit two people next to each other. It was like a compact vehicle. So when we started work on the Beast, Secret Service, who really kept so much secret on that project, asked, could we keep 
retain the interior dimension or width of a Cadillac and then make the car wider as opposed to shrinking the interior like a trash compactor. And, and that was really the basis of the beast. And, uh, and it was the first time they really allowed us to have much of a design influence on it. Admittedly, there's an awful lot they kept secret from us, but uh, uh, our relationship with Secret Service was good with the beast. The second beast we did, uh, we had even more design freedom in its development. Design freedom in a presidential limo. I mean, that's yeah. got to be the epitome. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, used for both presidents, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Um, yes. And you had the chance to sit in not a beast, something a lot smaller, but a 2012 Chevy Malibu with President Obama. And I know that was a moment that was caught on film and, and, and certainly the, the media, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a wonderful media moment. And there's a, there's a great shot of uh, President Obama looking at you and smiling. And I think just the two of you were in that car talking yeah. Chevys, right? It was, yeah, you look at the photo and it just looks like two brothers in a Chevy. I mean, it, it was, uh, <laughs> they set up a special exhibit uh, with Ford, Chrysler, and GM at the Washington, D.C. auto show. It was all roped off. Media was behind the ropes, like 20 feet away. And so I got there early. Last, and the last thing you want to do is get there late for the president. So I'm there early, and I'm standing there pacing back and forth. Finally, he comes in, and he goes through Ford. Then it goes to Chrysler, and it gets to GM. I'm the one who has been asked to take him through the vehicles. And we go from one vehicle to another to another. And for some reason, when he got to the Malibu, he decides he wants to jump inside. So he gets in. And I figure I better go around and get on the other side so I can explain the interior. So we get in, both get in the car. We shut the doors. And it felt like, you know, we were in, in a bank vault when it closed. All of a sudden, all the noise from the outside goes away. Secret services is they're all looking, you know, intently. And we had a great conversation. I start off by saying, you know, Mr. President, I, I'm really proud of what our designers have done in developing this interior. And I was about to get into that, you know, deeper. And he, he turned to me and he said, Ed, we're all very proud of you and what you are doing. And, and at that point, it's wow, you know, and he and I had a, very good conversation about my role, about his role, and uh, just conversation between the two of us uh, for a few minutes, and then we rejoined the world. When the doors open, all of a sudden, all the noise was back, and there we are. What a special moment. Yeah. After the break, we'll hear more from former General Motors Vice President of Global Design, Ed Welburn. Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Jason Stein, publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars. From industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into Cars and Culture. I'm Automotive News publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. Now back to my interview with former General Motors Vice President of Global Design, Ed Welburn. You've been told that you were part of the development of about 540 vehicles at General Motors, which is difficult for one to get their, <laughs> their, their mind around. It's hard for me to get my mind around it, yeah. When, you, when you're driving around now in Pennsylvania and you're spotting a 2016 Corvette Z06, like the one that I think sits, used to sit in your office or still does sit in your office, yeah. are, are you kind of saying to yourself, wow, I wish that we would have done that line a little differently in the vehicle, or wow, we, we did a great job on the nose of that. There are times when I sit in traffic and I'm looking at the rear of a car that I was involved in, and I just, and I think about, you know, how that line, the attitude of that line may have been better off just a hair different or something, but on the most part, I, I'm, I'm enjoying watching customers in their vehicle and they're having fun. When I see a family in, you know, one of those vehicles, 
it's kind of cool. And <laughs> and actually, I most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, when someone is modified, when I'm I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to see what it is they do. Yeah, yeah. How they how they've changed your own shapes yeah. and designs. Yeah, yeah. But you must look everywhere, given the the um, the volume of GM sales on an annual basis. You're constantly surrounded by your work on a daily basis. Uh, yes, yes, I am. I mean, and no matter where on the planet I go, you know, if I'm in China or or Russia or you know, in Europe, uh, yeah, that that's true. And it's yeah, it, it yes, it feels good. It feels real good. What are you most proud of? I'm not going to ask you what your favorite vehicle was to design because I know that's incredibly difficult and. We had Ralph Gilles on this program. You're the only one who doesn't ask that question. (laughs) But what I will say is, what are you most proud of? uh, You know, I'm several things, but, you know, I I thought the most important thing that I could do at General Motors is create an environment in which designers, in which creative people felt comfortable coming forward with their ideas and that they didn't feel any fear in doing that and and developing the collaboration between studios around the world and it grew to a point that's when i really felt satisfied was when say a studio in germany was working on a project and they were really having a difficult time with a particular project and another one of the studios will volunteer to help them in any way they could, you know, without being asked, like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we have something we can do to help. And, and uh, having friendly competitions between studios was always something great would always come of that. So a lot of talk about what occurred 12, 13 years ago now in the economic crisis, the financial crisis and the automotive crisis which of yes. course was a, a real drag on, on, on all three Detroit automakers and globally too. But how did design change after that in, in the resurgence that followed? Well, I think, I think actually we did some of our best work during that period because um, uh, everyone in design realized that they play a very major part in the success of the company. And they really dug down deep to do some great work. Uh, It was a difficult period to work in because the headlines every day were just so hard to take. And, you know, many of those rocks were being thrown at design. And um, it was during that period that we started work on the C7 Corvette. And I actually, I think, jumped the gun on, on the work on that. And I thought, what will energize the design community? And I decided that since we have studios all over the world and we have a great Corvette design team, but we have studios around the world. How about if I give that opportunity to every single designer in General Motors design, whether they were in Michigan, Germany, Korea, Brazil, Australia, China, India, the opportunity to submit their ideas. And it created this buzz, this energy in the whole community. You know, in some areas, I mean, everyone still had their day job. And in many cases, they would work on Corvette design at night at home or in the studio. And some really great ideas came out of it. Ultimately, the winning design came out of the Corvette studio. But I think knowing that they were in a competition just caused them to raise the bar. And uh, it just did an awful lot for the whole morale, the whole energy level of GM design. And Corvette fans are not shy about their love for Corvette design. I imagine you bump into them all the time. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, I I was in Detroit uh, recently on business brief trip and the hotel that was booked for me they didn't realize that that's where a major corvette club would be staying (laughs) (laughs) 
once they knew I was in the hotel, it was a little crazy. <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> but well, yes, you're... they are passionate about their cars. I, wow. And you're a rock star to them. You, you really are. You've dabbled in the fashion world, too. You're, you spearheaded the creation of three automotive fashion shows, two in Detroit, a third in Dubai. And in those shows, you used, uh, you used it as an opportunity for GM's latest concept cars to really roll down the runway alongside Hollywood. And you've had that strong Hollywood connection, too. I imagine that's been a, just a, a, a sheer joy for you. Well, it, it, was, it was fun to do those uh, style events and uh, the background behind it and bringing, you know, uh, celebrities in and picking the right outfits for them and then having them walk with a car on stage in an automotive fashion show was was just fun it was very it was a lot of fun it was quite different um i think the last one we did was in dubai and and it was it was a huge hit there as well with celebrities from the middle east and yeah, that that was great, and and working with Michael Bay on the Transformer movies was 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 really good. I think it was a big part of of uh, the success of the Camaro, and and really for Chevrolet as a brand, it was good for it as well. In fact, the Bumblebee Camaro, which became such an icon of those Transformers movies, uh, it's a you've you've left your print in the Hollywood world too. It, you know, it was it was interesting because we were working on the on the design of the Camaro as a concept car in secret. Um, I thought that bringing it back as a concept and possibly as a production car was right. It was the right time to do it. So we're doing it in secret, and Chevrolet knew I was doing this, and they wanted Michael Bay to see it because they thought it'd be a good candidate for his Bumblebee. And, I didn't want to show it to him until he told me something about the movie because all I knew was that my son always played with Transformer toys and watched the cartoons. I wanted to know what this movie is going to be like before I showed him the car. He wouldn't tell me about the movie until he saw the car. And I, <laughs> I, I admit I gave in. I gave in and showed him the car and instantly he said, yes, this is Bumblebee. And, and then we ended up really working together on all of the Transformer movies. Uh, developing the right vehicles, even beyond Bumblebee, for the for the movie. You, most recently, your body of work was turned over to the Smithsonian Institution Museum, making you the first automobile designer to earn that distinction. What did that mean to you? Uh, that that's that's huge. I I you know I barely even want to talk about it because it it's kind of emotional. It, it it's that big a deal to me and uh not only that it recognizes me but that it recognizes automobile design and uh you know it's presently not on display but it's there's a huge archive <laughs> with my work and including a couple scale models and all that i'm very, very proud of that you're staying quite active you're uh you're also involved uh, at least to some extent, with General Motors, right? The, do you get called in every so often to ask what you um, think of the project? Yeah, yeah you know, initially, um, when they started work on, because they're developing a new building for design, uh, I was brought in as a, I don't know, consultant on that. But, you know, my feeling is that design is a full-time job. You're either totally in or you're not. And so I felt as though it was best for them to handle it. They got input from me early on and that was pretty much it. I, you know, I've, I talked to Mike Simcoe just recently, but uh, I've been pretty distant from it on the most part. Mike Simcoe, your successor. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Who came from the design studio in Australia, actually. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he had been with GM for many years, uh, albeit, you know, the very distant studio, but uh, he had spent quite a bit of time in North America as well. Let's go back to the letter writing. Uh, throughout your entire GM career, you made sure that every letter that you received from a young person got a response, which takes us right back to the beginning of this conversation, Ed, where you wrote the letter at 
11 years old. Why did you want to do that? It's, you know, if in any way I could help a young person, uh, I wanted to do that. And if I could help shape their path going forward, and in some cases, you know, um, they weren't necessarily looking for design. Most cases they were, but um, I was able to respond in some way to, to what they were looking for. You're also part of something that you've started called You Make a Difference, a design mentoring program for high school, middle school students and art students in New York and Los Angeles. And you're a board member of Tony Bennett's foundation, Exploring the Arts. Tell me a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah, you, you've got two things here. You Make a Difference was a project we started at GM Design when I was there because, you know, I, I really wanted a more diverse team at General Motors. and you know, the feeder system were the design schools and they were not diverse. So we needed to reach back further into uh, high schools and middle schools and you make a difference with that project. Um, separate from that, I've, I've known Tony Bennett for quite a few years and he asked me to be a part of his foundation uh, um, which supports public schools of the arts in New York and in LA. Uh, incredible schools and his commitment to that has been great and as a member of his foundation uh, I support it in any way I can I spend time with students uh, at the schools in New York been to the one in LA just a couple times and um, but it's it's great to work with them Tony is just an incredible person I can't talk to him about music but uh, when I first met him, I was able to talk to him about art. He's a great painter. He's, his paintings are tremendous. And, and that's where, we're, where we connected. That's wonderful. When you think about, uh, if we go back to Charlie Wiggins, when, when you think about the impact that that film will have uh, on society, not only racing, but society in general, what, what do you... How do you feel that it's going to develop and what will it mean? I, uh, it's a very good question. I, I think there are several levels, just like the movie itself has got many layers to it. Uh, immediately, I think of Charlie and his wife, Roberta, and their relationship and, and how that relationship of real honesty and support that the two gave each other uh, I hope that connects with people. I think that the movie and will help people understand the importance of diversity, of inclusion, and how it how we can all benefit from that. And so I, I think that'll be a real strength of the movie. It just can't present a problem and needs to do more than that. The idea of this hitting the screen, I've, I've got to believe for you, will be perhaps more gratifying than even the greatest Corvette that you've been a part of a design team, right, Ed? That's exactly the way I feel. I mean, I, you, you know, it's the most meaningful thing that I've worked on. It's uh, other than helping, you know, my own children grow, you know, it just, it, this, this is a big deal. And uh, I've really dedicated myself to it. I'm involved in a number of different projects, but this is absolutely project number one, two, and three for me. <laughs> it starts production in the spring. When do you anticipate it hitting theaters? Um, I don't know. It, it really depends on the timing of actors and directors, the, the whole cast. You know, the director that we may want may not be available for a while and just syncing the schedules of, of the director and the lead actors, everything else will fall into place, but that will be a big part of it. It's fascinating, the technologies that they're employing more and more in that industry that will help to streamline the development. But, you know, I, yeah, I can't commit to an actual date for its release. 
you had a speaking role in Transformers Age of Extinction. Yes. You could probably repeat the line. What's the line, Ed? Uh, I, I, I can't do it with a straight face. And, and when Michael wanted me to do it, he, I had to be angry. I had to be mean. Jason, you know me. I don't yell. I don't yell. I don't yell at people. But he wanted me to yell. So it took a couple takes. And, and I think the, the tight shoes I was wearing kind of encouraged me to, to yell and get this done. But, you know, Michael's the most intense person I've ever met. And, and he got me. I yelled the scene. And it was, you know, I, I just yelled at, at these guys. I wanted to know what they had touched. And I told them to report to my office in 15 minutes. And I think you know where that is. But <laughs> I, had, I had to yell that, you know, and it was, you know, it, it was even more fun when I was on a flight and the movie was on. <laughs> and I put it in the language in Italian to see my me on screen yelling in Italian. That was more <laughs> than anything. <laughs> Will you have a role in the Wiggins film? No, I don't think so. I, my role, my role is now and will be increased when they get into filming, get more into production. Uh, my knowledge of auto racing, of shops, of garages, and all that kind of stuff, um, I'll be very much involved in. You know, the cars, race cars from that period, they're quite of them few of them around but they're very valuable these things are worth a lot of money so we will probably build some it's a whole lot cheaper to build some from that period and, and i'll be involved in that and and it's my plan to keep one of those cars when it's over but uh, yeah i don't see myself in an acting role in this but you know who knows what will happen we'll see the film is erased it's the story of charles charlie wiggins the most celebrated African-American race car driver of his era, and it's being developed by Ed Welburn and Madison Lee via Welburn Media Productions. Scheduled to begin production in the spring of 2022, it is another defining chapter for a man who has written many, many chapters. 540 vehicles, apparently, on the road. Um, Ed Welburn, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, I really enjoyed it, Jason. It's great to see you and great to talk to you. Thanks to former General Motors Vice President of Global Design, Ed Welburn. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road. Randy Zuckerberg hosts a fun, entertaining, educational, and approachable way to discuss all the latest trends and topics in technology on Randy Zuckerberg Means Business on Sirius XM Business Radio. 